Mindless Can, the podcast with radio personality Jane Lindley Thomas and psychologist Paul Bushel. Because every act of kindness, no matter how big or small, can change lives. In this series, Jane and Paul hope to enrich your life by giving you practical tools on how to be kinder in your relationships with yourself, with those around you, at home, work and in your community. So we are absolutely delighted to have Dr. Mtia Suleiman, founder and chairman of Gift of the Givers with us on Kindness Can today. Greetings and cheery salutations to you, Dr. Uh, to you also, Jane, and to Paul. Thank you very much for having me on your program. Well, it's an absolute privilege to have you, not only founder of Gift of the Givers, who since 1992 has managed to raise more than 3 billion rand and help people in more than 40 countries, but Dr. Suleiman, you personally as well, no less than nine honorary doctorates, countless presidential and international awards, and must be one of the greatest South Africans of our time. We are just so delighted to have you on Kindness Can today. I know Jane and I both, you're a role model for us. So thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. I was saying to Paul earlier, this is bigger than interviewing Bono. (laughs) 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 um, Dr. Suleiman, it's really wonderful to be with you. I mean, I've had the absolute privilege of working alongside the gift of the givers throughout my time at East Coast Radio. So again, thank you. So I want to start the conversation off with um, obviously gift of the givers um, making news uh, around our country and around the world as far as the support given during the Cape Town fires. I mean, more than uh, 4,000 UCT students fed and um, housed. What kind of logistics goes into an operation like that? To be honest, Jane, you know, the, the logistics in this one is not too big because, you know, it, it's a limited space. It's a limited area. It, it's a well-organized city. So it's not like in a disaster zone in an earthquake or something like that. The only complication was that you had to cook so many meals very quickly at short notice on the first night because it happened very suddenly. So on the first night, you get a call at half past four to say arrange meals for 4,000 students. The cook, it's Sunday afternoon. All the shops are not open now. He has to bring his staff back, get the ingredients, cut them, clean them, cook them, and we're catering for different tastes, chicken, mutton, and vegetarian. All this has to be sorted out. And then the students themselves, you don't know where they are because the university at the same time is trying to find accommodation for 4,000 students at short notice. And with lockdown, a lot of hotels have closed, you know, are not functional. The staff are home, they haven't been working for months which means the hotels are going to find staff, management, bring in, clean up the hotels, bring the place, bring the teams in, and the students are going to wait. So now you're cooking this food, but you're not sure where you're going to deliver it. And eventually, as we were getting to the hotels, the students were coming in as we were coming there. You know, they were walking at the same time. And some of them, fortunately, they were already in their rooms. So in essence, we took four, uh, the cook cooked all those pots of food, almost 14 pots of food. It was brought to our office. Then four of, all of Cape Town came to volunteer. And then whilst that is happening, of course, now I have to worry about social distancing and masking. So I had to bring my medical teams in just to make sure that everybody follows the rules. But fortunately, everybody was well-disciplined, organized, aware of COVID-19. And we packaged all the food in those foam plates from our foam boxes from the pots. And then everybody came. I got a car, I got a vehicle, I got this, I got that, I can deliver. We delivered to 29 hotels. So it was from the cook to the office, volunteers, foam packages, Different cars, keep a list of who took what and where and what quantities in each hotel. 30, 50, 500, 420, 255, 250, they took it to all the different hotels. And in some places, they went in the hotel door to door, room to room to deliver to the students. So that was the exciting part. But then 
The university gets back to us on Sunday night and says, we have another favor to ask of you. Besides tonight, can you do it for the next six to seven days, three meals a day? We said, fine, we'll do that because we've got some more time on, on Monday morning to arrange that. But on Sunday night, when we went to the rooms, the students, very grateful, very thankful, then asked, can you arrange, you know, a soap, toothbrush, and a toothpaste for us? And because we don't have those hygiene items, because we just left our room suddenly. So on Sunday, on Monday morning, we started packaging hygiene packs in addition to the three meals per day. No wonder How you many have volunteers? four cell phones. I mean, you know that Dr. MTS yeah. has four <laughs> cell phones, and now we know why. <laughs> I was about to say, that little black book has got a lot of numbers in it. How many volunteers, Dr. Suleiman, does it take to make something like that happen? Look, we have no volunteers, to be honest. We have full-time staff who work like machines because we specialize in disasters. We can't have people coming who don't really know how the system works. Each one in the team knows how the other guy works. So us volunteers can become a problem because they will tell you they're coming Monday morning, then suddenly they got a dental appointment or the cat got sick or somebody else called, you know, we have not that kind of story. And it can't work with us. It has to be on the spot, you know, it's like robots. Our teams are like robots in the sleep. They can tell you what to do. Mm. But where the volunteers help is where the people of Cape Town came forward. Because that kind of packaging, you know, assist text and then the, the, the core team can concentrate on goods coming in, organizing things, making sure all the paperwork is in, knowing which hotel the students have to go for, just to get collect instructions. And it was very, very interesting that more than 300, if not more than that, volunteers turned up to help. And to be honest, quite frankly, we could have had more than 4,000 volunteers, more volunteers than the students that needed help, because the whole of Cape Town wanted to come. Mm-hmm. And we had to hold them back because, again, for the rules. And it was very, very interesting to see that the first guys on the pot offloading food into foam box was an orthopedic surgeon and a pediatrician, members of my team. Emergency medicine specialists came, gynecologists came, all kinds of people came to the area itself to assist in the delivery and distribution of the food. So my sister lives in Cape Town, and um, she's obviously extremely um, emotional on the phone day in and day out. But it's always the case, isn't it, that, you know, Paul and I are so passionate about kindness. That's why we started the Kindness Can movement um, three years ago, because we so believe in the power of kindness. And I suppose it's when the chips are down that we realize that we are capable of so much. And I guess that you get to see that day in and day out in this beautiful country. Shane, you know, and Paul, you know what what was different this time? Remember, we've been socially estranged. Besides social, you know, distancing, we've been socially estranged from family, from friends, from the workplace, from going to the park, from going out. And to me, the get-together in Cape Town, the desire to be together was to feel being working together and do it in, in a responsible, sensible way. That's why so many people came up. Yes, yes, they came because they felt for the people, of, for the students in, in UCT, you know, they had difficulty. But just to see each other, I mean, the last two days, uh, we've got people from different companies coming and say, you know what, we just want to be here. I said, to do what? No, we just want to be here. It's such a nice atmosphere, nice feeling. We just want to be here. And it's, it's funny having supper at home and we're fasting. So, of course, teams of us are fasting too. So they come and join us for fasting and they say, no, we want to be here. But I said, it's fine. You can be here. It's not a problem. And the other striking thing was this. A guy calls from Kailicha. He says, I don't have a house. I'm from a shack. I don't have money. I can't offer anything. But I lost everything in five years previously and you guys helped us. Mm-hmm. I know what it's like. Can I take a taxi? and come to the building there and assist you, pack boxes, or, or do whatever is necessary. And he said, you know what, 
can we do that? I said, yes, you know, you're most welcome. If you can make money to come, come here. That was one of the positive message. Then a lot of people who came said, we don't know who the students are. It wasn't family and friends. So the family and friends, these students are in, in, in uh, residences. So all people, young people came, they said, we feel for the students. It's like looking after our children, our daughters and sons. And we know when we are mothers and our kids are far away, what it feels like. All different races, different religion, different color, not knowing who is who, all came just to be and take care of the students. And then was, there was such an outpouring. So there was a compassion on the one side, the care that the students are away from home for another. The third problem was they came back to study after a year. Basically, last year was the lost year. And just as they started, they had the fire comes and stops teaching time again. And especially medical students are worried about a volume. And then, of course, the people want to be together. And the beautiful thing was this. At fasting time, when the Muslim guys were breaking the fast, everybody else was not fasting, joined them. So it became one big happy family to eat together. It was such a good spirit of South Africans working together after a year of depression, a distance from each other, things not going right. And it was like, you, life is back. Yeah. I get goosebumps while you're talking. Of course, I suppose lots of moments of unkindness, whether human-made or from nature, the kindness that comes to fix that must be so inspiring for you as a, a person. I can hear it in your voice. Yeah, maybe you can take us through some of your stories where, where kindness has, has really stood out for you, where the, the spirit of kindness has just made such a big difference. It's been in every country. Wherever we go, locally, even locally, wherever we went, you know, you could see the, the, the effect of that. There's always a spiritual and a religious element to when you go and serve people. You get, let's take COVID-19. Now, these are professional people. These are doctors, CEO of hospitals, nursing managers, hospital managers, sitting in the hospital. And as you develop the stuff, as you get there, they just ask you, how did you know? Now you're thinking, what kind of question is this? How did you know? How did you know what? They said, how did you know that the nurses were about to go into strike in the next one hour? Because they were short of PPEs and they were afraid to go and see the patients. What made you come at this moment of time? We said, we just came here because it was part of the schedule. Without exaggeration, it happened in so many facilities. When we got there, they said, you know what? The last mask is in the room. The last mask in the room. When I drove into Eden Hospital, when my teams drove into Eden Hospital in Marisburg, ECO said the same thing. They said, you know what? We were so disillusioned, so demotivated. We had run out of PPEs. There was no deliveries. And we saw the gift of the givers branded vehicle driving. And we knew our answer was in that van. We didn't know what you brought. We didn't know why you were coming. We didn't know when you were coming. We didn't know that you were coming. But when we saw the van, we knew that our solution lies in that van. And it happens over and over and over again. That's COVID-19. A few weeks ago, you may have heard the story. It's quite big in the media. An old man from Mosul Bay, Africana, Christian man calls. And he says, I need to see you guys urgently. So we say, for what? He says, I want to bequeath my property to you. So we said, do you just need to speak to your lawyer? He says, no, I want to speak to you. Um, because I don't trust lawyers. I want you guys to recommend the lawyer to make sure that there's no cost and everything comes to you. We didn't ask amount nothing. We said, okay, my friend, we're busy with COVID-19. We're busy with drought in Eastern Cape. This guy is from Muscle Bay. We said, we'll get to you. 
it's fine. It so happened we were doing a delivery of food, parcels to farmers. First time farm workers, farmers have called for food parcels because they've lost everything. It's unusual for a farmer to ask for a food parcel for his family. We took the food parcel to the farmer. We took uh, the food parcels for the farm workers. And then we went to the area and we told the guy, my guy from Cape Town said, I'll come and see you. So he goes, he only speaks fluent Afrikaans. So my guy said he had to adjust to the Afrikaans. In any case, he goes inside the area and he says, he sees a picture of me on, on uh, in Ishal, an article about something we had done in Cape Town. And the guy says, thank you very much for coming, Afrikaans. And then he starts pouring his heart out. He says, you know, when I was very young, at the age of around 20, I was going to get married. That week, everything was arranged. The bride was ready. I was ready. The bride's outfit was ready. My outfit was ready. Invitation cards went out. The hall was booked. The caterer was booked. This is going to happen this week. Get married this week. And in that week, he said, there was a car accident and the bride-to-be died. He said, I lost faith in God Almighty. I lost religion. I lost hope in mankind. And I lived like that for many, many years. He takes out a file. He says, look at this. And five years of gift of the gifts articles, he takes out on that file. He said, look at this file. I've been following you guys. He said, I've been watching what you do for the farmers, for the animals. And he said, what I love about it, it's all race, all religion, all color, no questions asked. He said, when I looked at that, my faith started coming back. He said, for that to happen, that for that kind of compassion, it has to come from a God. It can't come from nowhere. So there has to be a God, and I need to reprogram my mind. He said, I've been going back to my religious books. I'm reading again. I'm checking again. I'm getting faith again. And I want to give you my estate. I have nobody, no cat, no dog, no wife, no children. It's only me. My money is invested in investments. My returns is I need 25,000. I need 25,000 a month to live. And this is what I need to save myself. But when I pass on, I got my money, all different funds, different insurances, different investments. I need that lawyer to write all these things down. I want everything to come to you. And we asked how much? 8.2 million. He said, everything must come to you. And I said, and he said, I want to come with you when you go next time to Oatswaran specifically, when you go and feed the animals and the farmers, I want to come with you. So we are arranging a further delivery very soon in Oatswaran just to take this gentleman with us. Do you know what's the best beauty, beauty of the story? When the story broke, my guys went back to him a few weeks ago. He said, let me tell you something. He said, people in, in the start have been coming. They heard about the story and they came to me. They said, do you know, there's a man in this town who wants to keep 8 million men. Who is that man? He said, I have to keep a straight face. All my neighbors and friends are discussing about what's going on. And I carry on like I know nothing. He said, everybody's trying to figure out who is this man in Muscle Bay that's giving. I said, how many people spoke to me and everybody's speaking to each other? It's me and nobody knows that. <laughs> And I think that's one of the beauties about being kind is that it doesn't have to be seen as a headline. It's that currency. And that's why Paul and I so believe in kindness as well, is that we do things not in the view of everybody else. It's the stuff that happens behind the scenes. And I kind of think that leads into, you know, I was going to talk about, I mean, there's been uh, rumors about you being up for the Nobel Peace Prize or talking about awards that are to go towards you. And you have said, hells to the nose, nose, nose. I'm not interested, right? 
look, there's two things. I'm not interested in Nobel Prize or anything like that for that matter, to be honest. Because my teacher told me something very important. When he gave me the instruction, I explained this clearly. When I was given the instruction, he said, my son, whatever you do will be done through you and not by you. So automatically, that whatever is coming, is coming because of some spiritual power through you. It's not your own achievement. He said, and then, but people come to you. They said, we really want to honor you. We feel important because it's good for our institution to give you, you know, that kind of recognition. And we just feel like doing it. Now, when people come with such kind of love, it doesn't sound very nice to say, I don't want it. Where I will not take an award is where somebody says, you must write in and say why you must get this award. And my staff laugh. Because quite often, we get somebody say, a request comes from America, a million dollars to be to, for, for the recipient of this award. You've got to fill it and motivate why. When they get it, they know they just have to delete the email. I'm not even going to read it. <laughs> and, and like that, if somebody comes and says, you know what, you've been nominated by somebody, a lot of people got together, and they want to give you this award, will you accept? In that case, I would say yes. Because it's a company that comes from the heart and you don't want to turn away you, because people feel they want to recognize something good. Like the university doctorates go. They will phone you and say, look, we've got a whole board set, the competition set, and you're nominated on behalf of the university. Will you accept this? And if it's your own university, for example, where you come from, you can't say no. You know, and you can't say no to a, a, a university that's not in the top 10 or top 15 in the world. It means you are selective. Again, you know, or are you only want to go to, to the top universities and not those ones who are not so recognized because of resources or even maybe. So you can't do that. I've taken awards from very unknown people and from very highly recognized people in the interest of saying to you, know, I appreciate what you do. Mm. So, Dr. Suleiman, lots of awards, but what have been some of the greatest rewards for you in doing the work that you've been doing for the last 28 years? The answer is always the same. It lies in the eyes of those people that you have. It's not a thank you verbally. It's not a this, it's a look in the eyes. You see it in the children, you see it in the women, you see it in the elderly, and you can see on their face a spiritual kind of glow on the face. When you bring the stuff, all people in the rural areas in the Transkai will do this. They'll put their heads up and, you know, thank God Almighty. They'll say, like the doctors and the CEOs and the managers of the hospital said, how did you know? The old people on a stick in the rural area will say, God answered our prayers. The people in green came. We knew he won't let us down. We knew our prayers would be answered someday. We were waiting for food. Our children were hungry. We were hungry. We had no water. We knew God Almighty will answer our prayer. You are God's people. You have come to fulfill his prayer. Then you see, we say thank you. In other areas, they don't say anything. You look at the eyes, and the eyes slowly go heavenward like that, and it comes back down. And you can see the intense thankfulness in the eye. And one of the places that it happened was in Somalia. When we went in 2011, when the famine was killing thousands of children each day, and the mothers had no breast milk to feed the children, and there was no food, and you gave them fortified nutrition supplement to feed the children, and you gave something to feed them. And they said, with their eyes, they looked at you, like, thank you. In Niger, 2008, famine again hitting the country. We went in, we had thousands of patients who came, and they needed medical care besides, uh, besides food. We sent out a medical team, 
in the area about eight or nine of us. And when we realized there's like eight or nine thousand new people here, how are you going to finish this? So when I started looking at the children, I saw, okay, some of them are not so bad. So when we went to see the children and we asked the, the parent, can we see you? Because you guys haven't seen a doctor. They just did this. I couldn't understand why. They didn't ask. And when they came, no adult male came, no teenager came, no child above six came. When the mother came, she only pointed to the baby and not to herself. And I can't understand this. Where's all the other people? There were no medical care here. There's famine, there's disease, there's no medical care. Why did everybody else not come? Couldn't understand that. And then after a while, I said, okay, there's too many people here. And then we went and I started seeing the children and I pointed to the guy. I said, this baby is okay. So all I did is they understood instantly. They understood that I said, the baby is okay. You need to go. No questions asked. They walked out. I can't understand what's going on here. That evening when we're having supper, I always have the teams with me to discuss. The medical teams, the media teams, my workers' teams, and even the government representatives who travel with me. And I said, speak. You know, everyone's got a chance to speak. One media guy says, I went into the village. I questioned the people. They said three to five children a day were dying in this village. I said, thank you very much. You don't need to speak anymore. I understood what happened. He said, what do you mean you understood what happened? I said, these people understood that we've come with limited resources, with limited medical people, so they don't want to jam the queue up. That's why no adult came, no teenager came. They only came to bring the baby because babies were dying. So if they take the pressure off us and we only look at the baby, we have the chance of saving a baby or somebody. And if their baby is not so bad, and may die in three weeks' time, they are prepared to wait out the three weeks' time and hope that something else will come in the three weeks. So they sacrifice themselves. This is kindness in another way. It is compassion. It's the ultimate sacrifice, actually. You know, they sacrifice their own health, their own being, so that somebody else's child could be saved. And the next day, they knew the system. The moment they came from far, they said, I said, thank you, gone. They understood the system. And then all the sick ones, they said, that one, come. And they started pointing to bring the sick ones. We saved every single child on that trip mm. because the community understood. And I then coined, the, coined a phrase to say, you know, the, the beauty, the dignity of the people of Africa. Because we always say it's a co- continent with fighting and corruption and illness and disease, but nobody sees the spiritual side. What guarantee was there that it takes time somebody else was coming? But they sacrificed seeing that child to see one that was immediately very, very ill today that may die this afternoon. That was a supreme sacrifice. Mm. It's one thing to be the, the giver of kindness, and that's so inspiring and powerful, but it must be another thing so rewarding to watch beneficiaries, people who are struggling with illness and disease and, and famine, finding within them the ability to continue to be kind uh, in spite of that for their community. I mean, I think that that's just, that's just kindness in motion. Yeah. Let me tell you a story of that. We were in Yemen. It was August 2012. It was Ramadan. I went there for the first time because I saw pictures of famine in BBC whilst I was in Turkey. And I came across, I went across, and I said, I, I, I met a guy who's now my, the guy who's, my office manager is the guy there, Anders Azamati, the guy who took out Yolandi Koki from Al-Qaeda. I met him on that trip. 
And they took me around. And it was, it was sunset now, time to break fast. And suddenly this woman is screaming in the streets. And I'm thinking to myself, Anas, what is wrong with this lady? He says she's fighting with all the men in the street to tell them they have no right to take me and him for, for eating food. We need to break fast in her house. I said, break fast in the house? What she's got in the house to eat? And it struck me then that the whole day we were walking around. Oh, and Ahmad Bam was with me. Ahmad is the head of the search and rescue team. And we were three of us were together. And then suddenly I told Ahmad, you know what? We went to every house looking for kids who got famine, who are, you know, full of malnutrition. We couldn't find them. He said, I said, you know what we missed? What did we miss? I said, did you realize that no house had any furniture, no fridge, no cupboard, no food parcel, no food, no table. We walked around the whole day in 15 villages and we missed something so important. There was nothing in those houses. What are these people eating? And I said, this lady now wants me and you and Anas to come into her house to eat. If we eat her food, what is she going to eat? So she's probably going to put us in the dark because there's no lights there. Very much like it's calm time. No lights there. And in the dark, she will make that she's eating. And whatever she has, she will give you. And I said, how am I going to swallow that? Surely, I can't eat that. I said, it's Ramadan. You're not supposed to lie any, at any time. Ramadan is worse for us to lie. But I said, oh God, I'm going to lie. Forgive me. But I said, tell a lady we invited somebody else to eat. And we actually accepted invitations from somewhere else. I just couldn't have the heart to eat that. We walked into Syria, into, into a, a camp. It's freezing cold. I'm a guy who can't take over. It was freezing cold. The kids were walking naked, getting washed in ice cold water. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, what is this? And we go inside and it's raining. And then a child comes with a bowl of olives and says, the, the big guy was starts listening. He said, you're going to take that and you're going to eat. It wasn't Ramadan then. He said, you're going to eat. I said, I'm going to eat this. And then what is the child and the family going to eat? He said, you have to eat it. It's part of the culture. You are the guest. You have to eat that olives that they offer you. Otherwise, they'll feel terribly insulted. And I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to swallow this thing? Because if I eat this, what is the child and the family going to eat after that? I had no choice. They made me eat it. And I had to eat it. And there was thankfulness in their eyes. I came to help them. But they gave me the olives. And they had nothing to eat. I can give you hundreds of stories like this. Gosh. Hey, <laughs> Paul. I don't know if I should cry or celebrate. I just feel so moved. Dr. Suleiman, as a child, you know, I wanted to be a cashier when I was a small child. My aspiration was to be a cashier or an actress. As a small child, what did you want to do with your life? I wanted to be a doctor. I already knew. Always. You know, always. We had a doctor still alive. He was, I was born in Pottersfield. And we had a general practitioner called Dr. Ismail Hafiji. And he was both in the medical world and in the religious world. In Ramadan, again, when at night we have night prayers where we recite the Quran from memory. And people from small, parents from small, send kids from small age to memorize its you know, 30 chapters. So they're going to memorize it. And over 30 nights in the month of Ramadan, they recite it and people follow them. So this guy was the doctor in the day. You call him for a house call in any part of the night, no issue to come. And and Ramadan, he used to lead the congregation in the prayer. And one day he said he's not doing it. 
He said he needs to take a break. And nobody turned up. There was nobody else who could read in the small town like Pontus And he stepped up to the mosque and they said, there's nobody. He said, okay, I'll do it. No problem. And when I saw the balance of the religious part and the service part, always with a smile, I said, okay, I want to be a doctor. I said, the second part about memorizing part, I don't think I'll be able to do that. But being the part of being the doctor, yes, that I want to do. He eventually moved to Durban. He now lives in Durban and is a professor of pediatrics. And after today, you know, when we meet and speak, I remember those days that he was such a dedicated doctor. And when I saw that, that inspired me to say, I have no other profession in my mind. I want to be a doctor. I mean, your job is so selfless. It's so giving. It's so community-based. What do you do in your spare time for you to pour back in? Because there's that old that, that, that saying that you can't pour from an empty cup. And I assume that you get so much buoyancy and resonance from people and community. But what do you do for you in your spare time? Do you have a spare time? I always say, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the right question. <laughs> that's the right question. You know, yes, I, I work 24-7. Since COVID-19, I've been working 20 hours a day from 15th of March up to today. Because there's always something else. But that's not an issue for me. I've always slept less. You know, I always worked more. And I'm a guy that loves action. I can't sit still. And, and my wife calls me an idiot. She says, you are not from this world. So when we're talking about human things, you can't be part of the conversation because we are talking about human beings and you are not human. <laughs> so, so I said, what do you mean? She said, you are just crazy. And when they say go for holiday, I start getting stressed. I always <laughs> make a joke. I find relaxation very stressful. <laughs> she, 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 10 years ago, she said she needs to go to the burg. I said to the burg, what are you going to do there after 6 o'clock? It's so dark there. There's nothing to do. I'll go crazy in the burg. <laughs> She said, but I want to relax. Oh. <laughs> it took me 10 uh, years to take it to the box. <laughs> and then I've got, I've got, a, I've got, I've got a, a manager of mine who's now retired. He's not well. So one day he phones me. He's just like me. He said, phew, I got a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, my wife is coming. She wants to go to Wombats for two days. What are we going to do in Wombats for two days? He said, I can't relax. What am I going to do in Wombats? You mean you're going to sit there in hot water and, watch, and do nothing? He said, no, I can't go to this place. So it's all inside the organization. But to relax, to be honest, sometimes come from a three-day, one, once or twice when I got sick while doing internship, I had to fill in a call time for somebody who did my time. And sometimes there was no space. And I would do three calls in a row, 72 hours. Work you know, Monday morning and go on Thursday afternoon. And when I get home, I quietly go to the video shop and I get three action movies, hide them under my car seat, come home and hide them under the loud sofa. I don't know my wife's busy, I take them out and then I watch. And I watch three action movies in a row. <laughs> so my relaxation is actually action movies late at night. What's your favorite action movie? <laughs> all of them, all the guys, Bruce Willis, Steven I was about to say, please say Bruce Willis. <laughs> my money was on Bruce Willis. Ah, <laughs> uh, Sylvester Stallone, Gerard Butler, <laughs> and all, all those kind of action stars. When I watch comedy, I tell my wife it's too sad to watch a comedy. <laughs> it makes me cry. <laughs> <laughs> and and if you're going to find a romantic movie and something, I say, oh, these things are so funny. can kill a person. <laughs> well, Dr. Cinnamon, I certainly hope that there's an action movie in your very near future because you are certainly deserving of it. 
Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to share some of these amazing, heartwarming, inspiring stories with us. Like the doctor was to you, you are certainly a role model to so many of us. I know Jane's nodding with me right now. Thank you for being such an inspirational South African. Yeah, we're very, very proud to, to be part of you in some way in the work that you're doing. So thank you very much. Thank you, dear Paul. And thank you, Jane. And honest, thank you to East Coast Radio. We've done a lot of things together and we're still doing things together. It's been great. You know, East Coast journalists have been coming with us for a long time. And it's great, you know, being part of the station and, and, and having partnership with the station on so many occasions. And thank you for the special interview. Oh, lots of love, Tien. Thank you so much for your time. May all your voyages be happy one. Go well. Amen. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Kindness Can, the podcast. Find out more at kindnesscan.co.za.